0: you do you let true green do your lawn care visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed
1: i'm margaret brennan in washington this week on face the nation president biden's massive spending plan nears the finish line as we inch toward the next leg of the marathon to vaccinate vulnerable americans relief may be in sight Vaccines for 28 million elementary school-aged children in this country could become available in a matter of days, plus a promise of a big expansion in available booster shots.
2: More than 120 million Americans will become eligible for a booster in the coming
1: months. We'll check in with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Then, newly released internal Facebook documents obtained by CBS News chart the explosion of misinformation that may have helped fuel the mayhem on January 6th. We'll talk with the chairman of the top committee charged with investigating, Mississippi Democrat Benny Thompson. We'll also ask about the tough compromises Democrats have to consider in order to make a deal. I'm hopeful. I think we'll get a good deal. And we'll hear from the chief economist at the International Monetary Fund on how much those proposals could impact the pandemic-plagued U.S. economy. Plus, almost two months after the last American soldier left Afghanistan, questions about our chaotic departure linger. Ambassador Zameh Khalilzad, who negotiated the U.S. withdrawal under Presidents Trump and Biden, joins us for his first television interview since resigning last week. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. good morning and welcome to face the nation. We begin what may be a key week in Washington as President Biden tries to close in on a compromised version of his multi trillion dollar social spending bill. At his Delaware home this morning, the president himself will directly negotiate with Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. Meanwhile, the COVID pandemic still looms large as community transmission remains high across the country. And vaccine mandates continue to be a point of contention. Mark Strassman reports from Atlanta.
3: We will not comply! While anti-vax diehards shake their fists.
0: We will not comply!
3: Most vaccinated Americans shake their heads. In Chicago, COVID America's latest flashpoint, vaccine mandates, fans the flames non-compliant firefighters have sued the city.
4: You do not want to have in your personnel history, the fact that you refused an order from your chain of command. Tell
3: that to 46,000 New York City employees. They get their first shot by this Friday, or it's their last day. An alarm bell for 3,500 unvaccinated firefighters and 15,000 cops. I'm worried about their jobs, but I'm also worried for the New York City residents and news for 120 million vaccinated Americans worried about waning protection against the virus. They suddenly have booster options galore. Pick from all three approved vaccines. FDA's authorizations and CDC's recommendations now allow for this type of mix and match. Here's who's eligible for a booster. For Moderna and Pfizer recipients, after six months, adults over 65 and adults 18 and older with underlying medical issues or living and working in high-risk situations. With J&J, it's simpler. Anyone 18 and older at least two months after the first shot. For all three vaccines, this is perfectly fine. But COVID keeps infecting our supply chain breakdown. One more force behind all those empty shelves. Another complication, tens of thousands of unvaccinated employees could be fired two weeks before Christmas. They're employees of federal contractors facing a December 8th vaccination deadline set by President Biden. Small wonder many businesses talk about playing hunger games, tributes fighting for supplies and survival.
4: We don't have any right now, but they're coming in supposedly tomorrow.
3: For now, these mandates do not include getting a vaccine. If you want one, the CDC says bring your vaccination card and you can go to any vaccine location.
1: Margaret. Mark Strassman, thank you. COVID cases around the world have leveled off but remain high, averaging just under half a million new cases per day. Elizabeth Palmer has the latest from London. Good morning. This month, we are watching a full-blown COVID crisis
5: in Eastern Europe. (laughs) Romania has one of the highest death rates on Earth. In October, the virus has been killing an average of one person every five minutes. (laughs)
1: Latvia
5: has gone back into complete lockdown with a curfew that has police patrolling the streets to make sure anyone out at night is an essential worker with permission. Russia, the giant of the region, is seeing a record number of deaths day after day. In the provincial city of Vologda, burials have doubled, and with winter looming, hospitals are struggling. Even in the capital, Moscow, there is alarm. President Putin announced a week of what he called non-working days. They start at the end of this month. The problem clear across Eastern Europe is low vaccination rates. The Soviet past followed by decades of poor and corrupt government means no one trusts authority with lethal consequences. Even now, less than a third of Russians are fully vaccinated. Here in the UK, the Prime Minister says he's not contemplating another lockdown.
6: We see absolutely nothing to to indicate that 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 that's on the cards
5: even though there were more than 50,000 new COVID cases last Thursday alone. But so far, deaths are stable and low. British authorities are also keeping a close eye on a sub-variant of the Delta strain, AY 4.2.
1: It doesn't look as if it's more virulent, but maybe more contagious. Margaret? Liz Palmer, thank you. We're joined now by former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who also serves on the board of Pfizer. Good to have you with us in studio. Good to be here. So we're headed into respiratory virus season. Um, is this new version, this new Delta variant, something that has you concerned? What is the direction we're headed in?
7: Yeah, look, I don't think this is enough to really change the trajectory of the direction we're heading in. We're much closer to the end of this Delta wave than we are to the beginning. The South looks very good right now. in the Midwest, where there's been a very dense epidemic, we see cases starting to decline. There's a pickup in cases in the Great Lakes region and parts of New England. So that's concerning. This delta wave still has to course its way through parts of the country. But I think as we get to Thanksgiving and maybe shortly thereafter, we're going to be on a downswing across the whole country. You're seeing cases come down all across the country. Um, this new variant, we think it could be more contagious. I don't think it's enough to change the overall trajectory. My lament is that we're not better at figuring out these questions. I mean, we should have an answer to the question of just what the characteristics of this new variant are and what kind of risk it poses.
1: That's something you've been saying throughout this pandemic, and it sounds like you're saying we haven't gotten any better.
7: We don't really have a coordinated system globally. We parcel this out to certain academic groups. Where we're dependent upon certain academic researchers to do this kind of analysis. The UK is very good at identifying these, these new variants. They have better sequencing in place than we do, but we don't have good follow-up in terms of the epidemiological work to try to figure out whether or not these new variants are spreading more aggressively this one if it is more contagious it appears to be perhaps slightly more contagious again the vaccine should be protective and certainly people who are infected with delta will be protected probably against this new variant so i don't think this is going to be a new variant that sweeps across the globe and we're back and we're back up you know square one here. I think that this is something that's going to probably push us in a direction of eventually reformulating our vaccines for a Delta backbone vaccine, because what we're seeing is the new mutations are occurring within that Delta lineage.
1: Hmm. So you said the other day, there are two remaining pockets of vulnerable, the very young and the very sick. So let's start with the compromise. This, we, we lost uh, the former Secretary of State, Colin Powell. Um, he was battling multiple myeloma, his family said he succumbed to COVID, though he had been vaccinated. What is the lesson there?
7: Look, I don't think anyone should die from COVID now. This is an avoidable death. People who are have intact immune systems have vaccines available to them, highly effective vaccines. There's two pockets of vulnerability to your point. Young children who will eventually... Be able to vaccinate, and then people who are immune incompetent, they can't mount an effective response to the vaccines because they're organ transplant patients, because they're on active chemotherapy. We have the tools to protect them. We could be using the antibody drugs on a prophylactic basis, giving them regular infusions, probably monthly infusions, to protect them through this delta wave. The drugs are being used that way off label. They're available under compassionate use. There is an emergency use authorization sitting with the FDA right now for that specific use. Look, I was an adult cancer patient at one point undergoing chemotherapy. Therapy. If I was in that position right now, I would be wanting to use these drugs on a regular basis to protect me. These patients have become prisoners in their homes because they know how vulnerable they are. We know there's people who aren't going to respond well to the vaccines. We can be protecting them.
1: So the former secretary was not given that antibody treatment when he became sick. You're saying as a preventative measure people should ask their doctors about this.
7: Right. We, it's happening. Look, these drugs are being used on a regular basis as a prophylaxis, not post-exposure prophylaxis, for what, which is what they're approved for, but as a, po- a general prophylaxis in people who are immune incompetent, who can't mount an effective response to a vaccine because of their underlying health conditions. And it's a small subset of Americans, but it's our most vulnerable Americans. Mm-hmm. The drugs can be used in that way. Regeneron is making them available under a compassionate use basis for that use. Yeah. Again, there's an application before FDA, but we should be protecting these lives. These are fragile lives. We have the tools to do it. We're not making aggressive enough use of those tools.
1: You've been saying November the 4th is the soonest we could see uh, vaccinations available for 5 to 11 year olds. Um, What do you think of the administration's rollout plan that they detailed this week?
7: Yeah, look, the effort has been to push the the vaccine for 5 to 11 into pediatrician's offices. So Pfizer, the company I'm on the board of, is developing a tray that's 10 vials, 10 doses each vial. So that's 100 doses. That's small enough that any small to medium-sized pediatrician's office can stock the vaccine and deliver it. In a regular refrigerator. In a regular refrigerator. It could be stored in a regular refrigerator for up to 10 weeks. It was, form, it was purposely um, packaged that way. And so the idea is to try to get it into pediatricians' offices because we know that you know, getting children vaccinated is a much more consultative endeavor. Parents are going to want to talk to their own pediatrician about that. And so you want the vaccine to be delivered at those sites. You don't want children to have to go to mass vaccination sites or even necessarily a pharmacy. You want them to be able to go into the comfort of their own pediatrician's office. So the administration has been behind that. The company has been behind that. That's been the plan all along. Once, if... Pfizer does get the authorization on Tuesday from FDA, Um, even before the CDC votes on this on November 2nd and 3rd, they'll start to ship it into the supply chain. So it will be available for use once there's a hopefully positive vote from CDC. So it could be as early as November 4th and 5th that you can go into some locations and get your child vaccinated.
1: And toddlers and the smallest children still have to wait. Um, I want to ask you to clarify the boosters and the information we received this week, because it's a little confusing for people. Um, When will the general population be able to get a boost? And with this authorization to mix and match, what should people go out and do? Where do they begin asking questions? Yeah,
7: I think the guidance from CDC that's going to come out, they haven't put out the guidance on the use of boosters. I think it's going to recommend you sticking with the vaccine you've had, unless you have a compelling reason not to. Um, And there are certain patients who might want to switch vaccines, but I think by and large, most people are going to prefer the vaccine that they had, or that's going to be the general um, recommendation that comes out of CDC. They didn't issue that guidance yet. In terms of the the total general population, the criteria for who's eligible for a booster is fairly broad, and it was purposely broad. And the administration sent a signal to the pharmacies that they wanted this to be a frictionless process. So I think they want these to be generally available for people who Mm -hmm. deem themselves to be at sufficient risk of contracting COVID or spreading COVID, that they they could benefit from a booster.
1: Dr. Gottlieb, always good to have you Thanks on the show and great to have you in person. We'll be back in a moment. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and
4: delivered to your door.
1: We want to turn now to the investigation into the events leading up to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The chair of the Select Investigating Committee, Mississippi Democrat Benny Thompson joins us from Jackson this morning. Good morning to you.
6: Good morning. How are you? I'm
1: uh-huh. um, well. Uh, before we get to that, I want to quickly ask you, since you are a progressive Democrat, what is your view? Are you disappointed that President Biden uh, had to give up tuition free community college and cut paid leave from 12 down to four weeks time?
6: Well, you know, I'm a realist in the process of making legislation. Uh, it's the art of compromise. Uh, sometime you win, sometime you lose. But it's, the ultimate product uh, at the end. Uh, I know what we have at the end is good for America, and uh, if we don't get everything in this package, uh, we'll have another opportunity.
1: Well, we will watch for those details as they come out, uh, perhaps in the days and week ahead. I want to ask you about January 6th and the work you're doing. In the past 24 hours, CBS News and other organizations have reviewed internal Facebook documents that show the company researched and identified ways to limit the spread of false news reports leading up to January 6th. Um, Some groups, though, still use that platform. To organize ahead of the violence. How culpable do you think these social media giants, specifically Facebook, are as to the violence that happened?
6: Well, uh, our committee identified Facebook and some other platforms as important to our investigation. Uh, we're in the process of negotiating with Facebook and those other platforms to get certain information. Uh, but it's clear Uh, that the January 6th organization, per se, uh, use them as an organizing tool uh, to the extent that we can identify uh, what will happen. That's the committee's charge from uh, the House of Representatives. Uh, We'll do it. But at this point, uh, Facebook uh, is working with us to provide the necessary information we requested. At that point, staff and the committee Uh, We'll review that information, and if it's consistent with some of the things that uh, we're hearing coming from other areas, then obviously it's a problem. But at this point, uh, we're not ready to make a decision one way or the other on Facebook's role.
1: You said this week you want to know who financed the march, who chartered the buses, who chartered the airplanes that day. Do you have any of the questions regarding the finances yet?
6: Yes, we do. Uh, We have uh, one of the teams on the committee uh, whose sole purpose is to look at the financing uh, of January 6th. Uh, The people who uh, spent money, uh, whether it's their money or other folks' money, it really doesn't matter. But we want that uh, to go to the work product of the committee. Uh, We think uh, the potential for commingling uh, restricted funds for this purpose might be there but obviously we'll look at it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just interesting to note that a lot of people came to Washington uh, by bus, by plane, uh, by chartered uh, uh, vehicles. Uh, They stayed in hotels, motels, all of that. Somebody had to pay for it. And we want to look at whether or not uh, the paying for that participation was legal and whether or not it contributed to what occurred on January 6th.
1: When will you subpoena President Trump himself? Have you seen any any direct line to him?
6: Well, let me say that nobody's off limits. Uh, we will be uh, on an ongoing basis issuing subpoenas to various individuals uh, around the country uh, if we have enough evidence. And, and obviously we are pursuing uh, evidence. But if the evidence uh, leads to former President Trump or anyone else, the committee is not resonant in pushing back on it, mm-hmm. uh, we will go forward with it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an investigation. Uh, we're not trying to get ahead of the inf- investigation. We'll follow the right. facts and the circumstances as they present themselves.
1: You know, Pres- President Biden said a few days ago that the attack on the Capitol was about racism. Listen to this.
3: Violent, deadly insurrection on the Capitol nine months ago. It was about white supremacy, in my view.
1: Has your investigation shown that to be true?
6: Well, clearly, there are some individuals who identified with Stop the Steal movement. Uh, that are part of the radical right-wing elements in this country. Uh, It's clear that those elements uh, would love to deny people of color their rights in this democracy. So the president, uh, in his opinion, uh, sees it. Uh, What the committee is tasked with is looking at the facts and circumstances that made it happen. Uh, I can assure you if the facts present what the president is saying, we won't be hesitant in making it part of our report. But I think the public saw for themselves when they saw Confederate flags, when they saw uh, anti-Semitic symbols being uh, displayed, Uh, those things clearly represent uh, a a philosophy that is anti-democratic and racist.
5: Mm
1: -hmm. I'd like viewers to listen to a portion of Steve Bannon's podcast from the day before that riot.
2: All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's going to be moving. It's going to be quick. And all I can say is strap in the war room, a posse. You have made this
6: happen. And tomorrow it's game day.
1: How premeditated was this attack?
6: Well, there's no question. Uh, Clearly, the direction of the committee is to look at that premeditation to make sure uh, that we identify it. But. Uh, The worst kept secret in America is that Donald Trump invited uh, Individuals to come uh, to Washington on January 6th. He said all hell would break loose Steve Bannon was part of the conversation and the promotion of January 6th the very podcast uh, You we just listened Mm to uh, talks about it. Yeah, Uh, Steve Bannon was in the the war room and and Mm -hmm. he was in the the Willard Hotel doing a lot of things. So that's why we subpoenaed him. That's why we felt it was important for the committee
1: uh,
6: and staff to depose him. Uh, But as you saw, uh, he refused to participate.
1: Understood. Chairman, thank you for your time today. We turn now to the COVID impact on the global economy. We're joined by Gita Gopinath, chief economist at the International Monetary Fund and the first woman to hold that role. Gita, good morning to you. Hi, Margaret. Let's start Pleasure with the, to join you. The, I'm so glad you did. Let's start with the largest economy in the world, the United States. Uh, the IMF had said previously that any change in the size of this spending deal President Biden was putting together could have an impact on global growth. It's been shaved down from that original four trillion dollar number. What will the impact be?
8: Margaret, to answer that question, we will need to know what the ultimate package looks like, because the original package, which was a slightly over $4 trillion, the combined package of the infrastructure bill and then the human infrastructure bill, the two of them were about slightly over $4 trillion, but that had spending measures and it had revenue-raising measures, including taxes. Another question is what happens in this new package, because if you're going to cut back spending and then you also then scale back tax increases, then the effect could be somewhat similar in terms of the net effect. But again, we won't know until we actually know the full details of the package.
1: Well, we know at least that uh, paid leave provisions are being trimmed from 12 weeks down to four. I know you have been looking at the impact specifically on women who are the caregivers here and are so central to the recovery. What does that do?
8: We've been in support of the paid parental leave, and we think 12 weeks is a reasonable uh, time horizon over which to provide that kind of leave that would be consistent with the standards in other oecd countries it's what the federal government currently has Uh, and in this crisis what we have seen is both you know what they call a uh, she session and a mom session Mm -hmm. which is the fact that we've had women being much harder hit in many parts of the world because they work in sectors that are contact intensive sectors that have been harder hit but also because they end up being the main caregivers at home, either for children or for parents. And so therefore having this kind of paid family leave will help bring back women much more quicker into the workforce.
1: I wanna pick up on that again on the other side of this commercial break, so please stay with us. If you're not able to watch the full Face the Nation, you can set your DVR or we're available on demand. Plus, you can watch us through our CBS or Paramount Plus app. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation, so stay with us. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to continue our conversation with Gita Gopinath, Chief Economist at the International Monetary Fund. Uh, Before the break, you were talking about uh, the rest of the world. The most developed economies in the world have 12 weeks of paid leave. The United States does not. And in fact, President Biden won't be able to deliver on that. His compromise has been four weeks of paid leave in the latest version of this spending bill. Uh, Is it safe to say that will have a negative impact on economic growth and your projections?
8: Margaret, we need to bring back all the women who've left the labor force and return back to the market to get a full recovery. And uh, family paid leave absolutely helps in that dimension. Now, four weeks is better than zero, so I think that that is certainly progress made. But again, what we are seeing around the world is we are seeing labor markets that are recovering much more slowly than output. And in the US, while we're seeing men come back much faster, women are taking longer for that to happen. So we need to pay very close attention to making sure that women, it's attractive for women to return to the workforce. Uh,
1: And and they're capable of it. So the other thing I want to ask you about that's a big worry right now is just the cost of living. We're seeing prices go up. Uh, Procter & Gamble announced this week toothpaste, basic goods, they're going to have to raise prices there. The Federal Reserve Chair in this country, uh, Jerome Powell, said risks are to longer bottlenecks, higher inflation, How long can this go on before we lose control?
8: Inflation has indeed come up high in these last several months. Now, some of that was expected after a deep recession last year. We've had a rebound in global demand. We've seen commodity prices come back up after crashing last year. But we're also now seeing the frictions between supply and demand not matching up. We're seeing supply chain disruptions around the world because the fact is that the grip of the pandemic remains, even though maybe it's somewhat lighter, It is; it remains in the world and that's creating disruptions everywhere. The way we see it is that these pressures will remain until sometime in the middle of next year and then we should see, see us returning to more normal levels of inflation towards the end of next year, but this is going to take some time and we are certainly seeing Costs go up. Energy prices have risen again sharply at this time of the year, and that's going to feed into headline inflation.
1: There's also a, a potential debt crisis looming over the second largest economy in the world. Um, a senior administration official here in the U.S. told me it could be catastrophic. It could just be painful if the, one of the largest property developers there in China um, fails. How do you see this playing out?
8: The property sector is. A very important part of China's economy, and Evergrande is one of the biggest property developers, which is why we're paying very close attention. But at the same time, our view is that the government has the resources and the ability to ring fence the problem, which means that while we will see shake up happening in the real estate sector, that it will be contained and will not spill over more broadly to the chi- to China's economy. And therefore, we won't see very substantial slowing in growth, which is where, when we will see repercussions to the rest of the world. So it is a risk. Uh, it's a downside risk that we're paying very close attention to. But we, as of now, we believe that it, the effects can be contained.
1: It's a controlled risk at this moment. That's right. All right. Gita Gopinath, thank you so much for joining us today. The chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban's victory there has left many questions about whether Americans are actually safer now. Until a few days ago, U.S. Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad was the Biden administration's top envoy negotiating directly with the Taliban. He brokered the Trump-era deal with the Taliban, in which the U.S. promised to withdraw all U.S. forces. And he joins us now for his first television interview. Welcome to the program. It's
9: great to be with you, Margaret.
1: The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, said this was a strategic failure, the end mm-hmm. of America's longest war. He said the enemy is now in charge in Kabul. Do you share that view? Well, I think uh,
9: there is a lot of anger and a lot of resentment about what has happened uh, there. I think uh, with regard to terrorism, we largely have achieved our objective. Uh, on the issue of building a democratic Afghanistan, uh, uh, I think that, that uh, did not succeed That struggle goes on. Uh, The the Talibs are a reality of Afghanistan. Uh, We did not defeat them. In fact, they were making progress uh, on the battlefield, even as we were negotiating with them. And the reason we negotiated with them was because uh, militarily things were not going as well as we would have liked. We were losing ground each year. They were winning Uh, the war. Uh, uh, slowly but uh, uh, making progress and for us to reverse the progress that they were making uh, was going to require a lot more effort.
1: How many Americans remain in Afghanistan today?
9: We aren't sure. The the, the frank answer is because not every American, uh, uh, some of them are Afghan-Americans who who have families there, who uh, who live there. Uh, It's hundreds, uh, uh, isn't it? I I think uh, it's very likely that it'll be uh, uh, in hundreds, but uh, we don't know. The truth of the
1: matter is we don't know. The UN has given some pretty dire projections of what's happening inside Afghanistan right now. More than a million children could die of malnutrition in the next year. Yeah. The Taliban has still not allowed girls aged 12 and older to return to school. They may say something, but they're not doing it. There are videos of women being beaten in the streets to just demonstrating for their rights. I mean, isn't this proof that the Taliban has no intention of becoming? a democratic government or any kind of government that protects human rights?
9: There's no question that uh, uh, the Taliban have a different vision for Afghanistan. It's a vision of a more Islamic government uh, uh, than existed before. And there is obviously disputes about the interpretation of uh, Islam. Little girls going to school? Well, I think there is a disagreement uh, inside the Taliban. Right now, for example, in. at least three or four provinces, uh, high schools uh, for uh, girls have been opened. And they say the same will happen uh, as far as the rest of the country is concerned. And we should hold them uh, to that, keep pressure on them. If they don't, Taliban don't move toward more inclusiveness, respecting the rights of the uh, Afghan people, and, and then honoring their commitment to us on terrorism, there will be no uh, move towards normalcy, and there shouldn't be. There should be no uh, release of funds uh, uh, so that economy uh, could collapse. And in that collapse, uh, 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 a new civil war Mm -hmm. uh, uh, could start.
1: Do they know where the leader of Al Qaeda is? The UN says he's living in Afghanistan.
9: Well, I, the report that I have seen uh, uh, indicate he could be in Afghanistan or uh, adjacent territories. Ayman uh, al-Zawahiri. al I don't know whether uh, the, the Taliban know it. Uh, uh, that The Taliban that I dealt with, uh, uh, they told me they did not know where he was.
1: You did not include the Afghan government in the deal between the U.S. and Taliban. That was a later step that you promised to, to include them. Oops. But for the deal you brokered, Right. H.R. McMaster, right. retired general, former right. national security advisor to President Trump, said, said you, you brokered a surrender deal. How do you respond to that? How long
9: did, did General McMaster think we should continue while losing ground each year? Why, why, did, why was that the case after 20 years? That uh, with so much investment, so much loss of life, that we were losing ground to the Talibs. And the alternative was either a negotiated settlement or more of the same. And uh, people way above my pay grid decided more of the same is not acceptable anymore. Because the American public had lost the will to fight. And, and the fight wasn't going right. The fight was not going right after 20 years.
1: But on the specific point of one of the things in the deal, yes. why did the Trump administration agree to the Taliban's demand that 5,000 prisoners be released, right. 5,000 prisoners right. who could very easily end up right on that battlefield. Right. Well, Why did you do that before peace talks? Uh, the,
9: uh, the Taliban, uh, in order to sit with the government to negotiate, wanted some confidence-building build, uh, measures from both sides. Uh, their demand was all prisoners be released by both sides uh, as a goodwill gesture, as they were going to sit together at the table to, uh, to negotiate peace.
1: What uh, do they need potential fighters for if they're negotiating yeah. peace. Well,
9: but they were giving up the fighters also because it was an exchange of prisoners, not a release, one-sided release. The
1: Ghani uh, government uh, was beginning. not supportive of your work.
9: I was representing the United States uh, to uh, carry out the president's uh, direction, but uh, I believe the biggest difficulty was that President Ghani and a, a few other Afghan leaders Uh, did not believe that we were serious about withdrawal for a long time. And they liked the status quo compared to a uh, political settlement in which they might not have the jobs that they had and and the resources that the U.S. was providing would not be there. They Mm -hmm. preferred the status quo to a a political settlement. But...
1: If the United States is promising, essentially, to deliver the Afghan government and to make this deal happen, wasn't it diplomatic malpractice for the Secretary of State not to be holding Ghani's hand, walking him through this? Shouldn't Mike Pompeo have been doing that? Shouldn't Tony Blinken have been doing that?
9: Both of them spent a lot of time uh, with uh, uh, President Ghani uh, to uh, take the negotiations seriously, to believe uh, that we were How was
1: more arm-twisting not happening then? Uh, if, if all the blame is I, to go I, on the Ghani government. I,
9: I believe myself, if, uh, uh, now that you've asked, that uh, uh, rather than that we pressed Ghani uh, too much, uh, it's my judgment that we didn't press him hard enough. Mm-hmm. and that So we, the Trump uh, administration
1: could have pushed harder?
9: We could have pushed harder, uh, I believe. We, in retrospect, my judgment is that uh, uh, we could have pressed President Ghani harder.
1: Secretary Blinken has said he inherited, the President Biden inherited this deal right. and not a plan to execute it.
9: Right. Whose well, job was that? Well, I think that uh, they did inherit uh, 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 the agreement, uh, no doubt. They had an opportunity to take a look at it and they did. They could have made a variety of decisions uh, with regard to that agreement. Uh, they decided to stick with the withdrawal uh, provisions. Why of the wasn't agree- there
1: a better plan in place from the Trump administration or crafted by the Biden administration to execute what you put on paper? Well, th- this
9: execution of the uh, last phase uh, was not a military withdrawal that uh, went awry. It was Uh, the uh, uh, response of the Afghan people to what was happening that created the scenes at the airport. It was a combination of fear and opportunity. Fear, because uh, for a long time, Everybody was saying, including some officials, that uh, when the Talibs come into Kabul, there will be a terrible war, street-to-street right. fighting, destruction of the city. So people were afraid that was one. Two, the impression was created that the, anyone who can make it to the airport, whether you have documents or not, you will be evacuated to the United States and to, uh, to Europe. That combination led to this flood of people to come to the airport and... Uh, caused the, uh, the, 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 the terrible scenes.
1: Is there blame to be borne by President Biden and his diplomats who you were working with?
9: Right. Well, I believe that, uh, that uh, the diplomat worked very hard. The president made the decision that he did, uh, not to go pursue a condition-based approach, but just a calendar-based approach right. because of a belief that if you pursue a condition-based approach, that the Afghan must negotiate and come to an agreement first that we will be stuck there for a long time.
1: In your resignation letter, you said this did not turn out as you envisaged.
9: Right. I I would have wished, I would have liked to see a negotiated settlement.
1: Why wasn't there a plan in place, at least on the counterterrorism front, to deal with the Taliban, to talk
9: to the Taliban? Well, we did talk to the Taliban. We have a set of agreements with them, uh, uh, some of which have not been released yet on what they will do on the terrorism front. We uh, hold them accountable to those agreements.
1: The administration says that those agreements are not in place, which is why they're trying to build those relationships now with the Taliban. No, no, there
9: is agreement in place. There is agreement in place uh, with the Taliban on on, uh, terrorism and counterterrorism. To do what? uh, Well, that they, they will not host... They will not allow uh, fundraising. They will not allow training. Uh, they will not allow recruitment of, by individuals or groups uh, uh, that would threaten the security of the United States and our allies, uh, including al-Qaeda. But since we don't trust them and since we decided to leave, we're going to do that from, uh, uh, the, so are from you... beyond Afghanistan. And that remains a, a critical mission.
1: Do you think Americans are
9: safer now? The terrorist threat from Afghanistan... Is not what it used to be. The American people should be pleased, not with the way the uh, final phase happened. We all uh, are unhappy with that. But uh, that uh, uh, the Afghan war is over for the United States, uh, the burden has been reduced. Uh, that we achieved the goal of uh, the devastating Al Qaeda in the Afghanistan. The CIA says
1: Al Qaeda could reconstitute in as little as a year within Afghanistan.
9: Well, our record of predicting things, unfortunately, we need to be a little humble uh, in this regard. Uh, but So we're uh, not safer. Th- uh, w- You're hoping. We, we are much safer than we were before we went to Afghanistan we went, when al-Qaeda, uh, Osama bin Laden, was running camps. Right. And thousands of uh, people were being trained. Al-Qaeda sponsored Afghanistan. That is gone. But from uh, August of this year on. Well, we need to keep an eye on the situation, do not, not to do the same thing we did Uh, Prior to 9-11, as we were seeing, Al-Qaeda was developing, training, organizing, and we uh, didn't have a serious strategy on response to it until after 9-11. We shouldn't repeat that mistake again.
1: Do you feel you were misled by the Taliban? Well,
9: I I don't uh, 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 allow people to mislead me. I uh, do my homework. Uh, The whole of government, this was not a, a... Zal Khalilzad alone doing this. I had uh, uh, the military, the intelligence, uh, everyone with me. You're the only one out here defending it, though. But but, uh, that's one reason why I left. I give you credit for coming and talking about it. One reason I left the government is that uh, that, uh, the debate wasn't really as it should be based on realities and facts of what happened, what was going on. Uh, uh, and uh, what our alternatives were. The decision ultimately was uh, uh, made to put condition base aside and and follow a calendar. President Biden could have
1: asked to keep troops longer, is what you're saying.
9: He could have. Then there would have been consequences for it, which is uh, that the Taliban might not have accepted that, and therefore... Uh, they, uh, no attack on U.S. forces that was in place for so many months. Uh,
1: Thirteen American yeah. service people died, though.
9: As a result of a terrorist attack at the airport by uh, Daesh, which the Talibs are enemies of. Carried off, by ISIS. Uh, by ISIS, and they are at war with each other. But that bomber
1: was released from prison by the Taliban. It, well, not with the intention. When they to, came, not with the intention, but <laughs> right. that was what happened. So this wasn't an orderly withdrawal. Thirteen American. Nobody,
9: died. nobody. Uh, I would. I'm not saying it was an ordered withdrawal. This was an ugly uh, fi- final phase, no doubt about it. Could have been a lot worse. It could be a lot. Worse. The Talibs did help with the withdrawal. General Mackenzie would tell you they did everything we asked them to do during that final phase. I was on the phone with them constantly. Push this. Uh, close this road, allow these uh, uh, buses. It could have been a lot worse. Kabul could have been destroyed. Street to street fighting could have occurred. I went to Afghanistan after 30 plus years after the Soviet withdrawal and what happened. Everywhere you looked, there was destruction, like uh, some German city after World War II. It could have been a lot worse. It could have been a lot worse. It can still be a lot worse, or it can get better. But the choice is now mostly theirs, Afghans. Rumi, the great Afghan born in Bagh, said, you can walk with people, you cannot walk for them.
1: Ambassador, thank you for your time. Thank oh, you thank for taking you.
9: questions. Thank you very much.
1: We'll be right back.
2: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
1: Under Taliban rule, a humanitarian crisis is growing inside of Afghanistan. The U.N. reports 97 percent of households could be living below the poverty line by the middle of next year. MTS Tayyip has been reporting in Kabul, documenting the state of the country following the U.S. withdrawal.
10: One of the Taliban's first acts after seizing Kabul was to come here to the green zone and to paint their flag on this blast wall outside of what now was the U.S. Embassy, to make it clear they're now in control. But so much across Afghanistan is already spiraling out of control. The United Nations is warning at least one million children will die from malnutrition without urgent humanitarian assistance, like six-month-old Sophia. Her father, Baba Shreen, tells us he's helpless. Kabul is a city I know well. I first started coming here over a decade ago, but never have I seen it so desperate. People we meet tell us things have gotten so bad, they're selling off whatever prosperity they once had. Those with even less come here. To a USAID-funded World Food Program distribution centre. All that's on offer are sacks of flour and a bit of salt. While we were talking to an aid worker, the Taliban arrived.
9: Oh, they, they say stop.
7: Filming? Uh, yeah, we, we should continue later.
10: We overheard a Taliban fighter ask his commander if he should kill us. It was time for us to go. <coughs> now that the Taliban are firmly back in power, it's up to the battle-hardened militants to govern and protect the lives of over 30 million people. But in recent weeks, the Afghan affiliate of ISIS, known as ISIS-K, has been lashing out. Patrols like this have been stepped up across Kabul, but the Taliban insists that ISIS-K is not a threat. Attacks like this tell a different story. Less than a day after we arrived in Afghanistan, ISIS-K carried out a suicide bombing at a mosque belonging to the Shia minority in the southern city of Kandahar. Despite the threat, the Taliban leadership seems more interested in enforcing repressive edicts against women and girls like when it was last in power including its recent decree that only girls 11 and under would be allowed to go to school, while girls over the age of 12, millions of them are now forbidden, like 14-year-old Huda Siddiqui. Does Afghanistan still feel like home to you? No. Yeah. Zabihala Majahid is the Taliban's chief spokesman. When can they go back to school? Is it a matter of weeks, months, years? He says, we are trying to do this, but we can't tell you how long it will take. The Taliban really don't like women at all. Mehbuba Siraj is an Afghan-American women's rights activist. What do you want to say to those girls who haven't been able to go to school?
3: I want to say to them, don't lose hope. So hang in there. Inshallah, we are going to fix it.
10: Afghan women and girls, defiant and determined despite the odds.
1: That is MTS Tayyip reporting in Kabul. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Frennan. Today's guests were former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, Mississippi Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson, Chief Economist of the International Monetary Fund, Gita Gopinath, and former U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan Reconciliation, Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad. The executive producer of Face the Nation's Mary Hager. The broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation's also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 10.30 a.m., 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern every
5: Sunday.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan,
4: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast